oftentimes, you know, we put so much hope on what money will do for us. Yeah. And Arthur said something really interesting. It was in essence, look, the studies show that when people move into a dream house, they're less happy six months later because they put so much hope that a dream house is going to do something for them. Yeah. And if that's what you're pinning your, your enjoyment on, you're going to be like, disappointed. Yeah, that's not what brings you joy. What's up, guys? It's Jeff Burningham here on the Extraordinary Us podcast. So excited to be launching season two. Finally, sitting in our uh, home studio now. Really excited. Welcome. We're excited to have you. This is the purpose of the podcast. Despite our differences, we are all a lot more alike than we are different. No matter our circumstances, we are all just ordinary people doing extraordinary things. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories from people you may or may not have heard of to remind us of that fact. Also, I feel like many of us are kind of slowly bleeding out emotionally. And this last year has exhibited that, highlighted that, unfortunately. This podcast aims to elicit more compassion for people and less comparing to those around us and to help us be more emotionally whole. And today I've got a great guest in the podcast room with me, Steve Starks. I'm excited to have you here. Good to be here. I'm sure you know Steve, or many of you know him. He is the CEO of the Larry H. Miller Group, former president of the Utah Jazz, et cetera, et cetera. And he comes from a powerhouse family of Starks. Where did you guys grow up? Where are you guys from? Because there's a lot of brothers. You have a brother at uh, the World Trade Center, right? Yep. You have a brother at GoEd. Obviously, you've been involved. How, how many Stark brothers are there? There's five boys. Okay. We have two sisters as well. Okay. And uh, so uh, mom's from California, dad's Utah. Uh -huh. And I was born in California. And then um, my brother, Ryan, who works at the governor's office of economic development. And then Aaron was born in Utah. And then Matt's our youngest. He was born in Utah as well. And so uh, it's a great family. It was awesome growing up with boys. And, and uh, we still love each other. You know, <laughs> that's good. All five of us, they're, you know, very different in some ways, but really close. That's awesome. It's a blessing to grow up in a family like that. Why are you guys so, why are you so tight and why have you been so successful? And speaking generally, you know, like I, I think, I do think of the Stark family, like there's just a lot of cool Starks in Utah doing good things. What, what, what would you credit that to or any thoughts about that? You know, I just, I, I think we've always um, been close because our parents taught us to be close. And uh, the one thing that my parents uh, instilled in us is that we love each other. We can talk about any topic around the, the table. And my parents were super vulnerable with their life and background. And, you know, my mom was adopted only child. Her mom died at, at uh, 14 years old. And my mom has experienced some things. My dad was a cop in LA. Wow. And so they never, you know, they never sheltered us from what the world was like. And they did a great job of just letting us know about their own experience and journeys. And so I think that fostered in us a togetherness and uh, a closeness that continues to this day. That's awesome. So what brought you guys to Utah? I think my dad is just ready to get back. Okay. You know, from here, went on a mission, went to California, worked, um, and then was just ready to get back. And cool. 
So were you raised down. here? Did you grow up? We moved here when I was 10 okay. and then grew up uh, in the Ogden Valley, which is like Huntsville, Eden, Liberty. Oh, that, that's that, the, that is the good place. That's one of the best places in Utah. Yeah, it is. It's a special place. Nobody should move there. Everybody should avoid it. Yeah. If you're listening yeah, to don't, this, don't like, hear that. Park City's amazing. Just go there. Yeah. Eden, Huntsville. You did not hear that. <laughs> yeah. Did you grow up? Are you a skier or snowboarder? You know, I'm not. Okay. I'm not a skier or snowboarder. So you didn't grow up skiing great. Powder Mountain? No, man. but it's oh. a great place to grow up. It's a rural environment. People yeah. are great. And so. So your parents still in that beautiful valley? They've or? moved down closer to us. We're in South okay. Jordan. Got it. And uh, they're close. Aaron's in South Jordan. And so um, we're kind of gathering in that part of the valley. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about how you got to uh, the Larry H. Miller companies. I, I know a little bit of the story. Would love to hear more. I think it'd be interesting for our listeners to hear more. I'd love to hear a little bit of that. And what did you learn from Larry? You know, how, what year did Larry pass away? Uh, Larry would have passed away in 2009. Nine. Yeah. So 12 years ago. Yeah. It's hard to believe. Um, t- tell us about how you got there and maybe some thoughts on Larry. What a what a great pillar in the community, obviously, and did some amazing things that still having ripple effects. It's awesome. I'm amazed at, like, there's this generation of people that don't know Larry. I know. Isn't and, that weird? Like, yeah. they know Gail. Yeah. Which is pretty cool because yeah, her story awesome. now is yeah. has almost become separate i mean they're always together but in her own right she's become one of the pillars of our community i um i graduated from weber state university and i went to dc was going to go to law school interned with senator hatch and uh, came home after that summer and said i'm not going to go to law school and i'm not going to work in dc that's the other thing though the starks are political you guys are into politics yeah for some reason or another we just all kind of gravitated towards you know public service and been intrigued by that my grandfather was the mayor of clearfield and so maybe it comes from that yeah um, and so I, I ran a campaign for governor, you know, for Nolan Karras, who, you know, yeah. and, and we all think very highly of, mm-hmm. ultimately lost to, to John Huntsman. And then um, I was looking my wounds and went to work for Rob Bishop in his second congressional campaign and ran that campaign one. And then Huntsman, to his great credit, called and, and, you know, that team offered me a job to come and help manage the transition. Yeah. And so I managed... Um, helped that process and and then when it was all done governor huntsman at that time said hey we've had so many people involved and came up with so many recommendations let's keep a group together that's like a kitchen cabinet or an advisory board to me and let's go tackle some things in state government in a way that can uh, improve processes efficiency effectiveness and so I became the managing director of that effort. And we put together a board. Larry was our chair. Because Larry was the head of the transition, correct? Yeah, he was yeah, the yeah. chairman. Of Which, the by the way, Steve was for now Governor Cox this last time. Yeah. So you kind of stepped into Larry's yeah. shoes in that yeah. regard. But yeah. So Larry led the transition, but then you stayed involved in that kitchen cabinet. or What, what yeah. was it called? Yeah, it was called the Utah Policy Partnership. Got it. And it was, it was like, let's go recruit private sector people to come and help state government. Let's look at a process. So let's look at consolidating all the IT in the state. Let's, And so my job was to go out and recruit people and say, hey, like you're not going to make any money, but come help pro bono. Let's go tackle some things on behalf of the state. And it was a great effort. And our board was super solid. And after a couple of years of that, I was going to go to business school. And Larry said, hey, don't go to business school. Come to work for me instead. That's totally Larry, right? Don't go to school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So what year was that? Uh, that was 2007. And and so what did you step, what position did you step into? Because by the way, again, you're now the CEO, like you run, anyways, we can talk more about the companies and 
So tell us about that ascent and what, what did you start out as? I think it's interesting, you know? Yeah, I really was set on business school because I wanted to go have that experience, but I had gotten to know Larry and as much as anything was drawn to his personal character, personality, force of personality. And so we went to lunch one day and he said, in, in essence, we have some gray hair in our company and we need to develop some bench strength. Your job will be to work with me. You'll get to know the company. You'll get to know our industries that we operate in, our culture. And then over time, you'll naturally find uh, areas where you'll make a big impact. And, and so it was a leap of faith because I'm going to an undefined role. Yeah. And by the way, we didn't even talk salary. <laughs> so why did you go? Because it was Larry Miller. I know. And I thought, you know what? Like I can always go to business school. Yeah. That's a good option. But to go work with somebody like that was yeah. really intriguing. And I had been married for like four months. That's cool. And so went home and was like, hey, I don't know what our salary is or what we're <laughs> going to make, but it's a great opportunity. And and honestly, I, I literally just sat with him for several months and went to his meetings, got to know our businesses and the, the rest of the Miller family. And after a couple of weeks, I said, hey, Larry, you know, we've never talked about salary. And uh, I told you the story before. Yeah. And he's like, OK, let's talk about it. And and so um we settled on $80,000 a year. Okay. Which, which is pretty good. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. It was like, great. That was, it was more about experience and I was grateful for that. But he said to me, Steve, I, I promise you this, you may make a little bit more money in your life, but you'll never be happier. He's like, if you have enough money to take your kids and family to, to Disneyland, to fix the fridge, if it goes out and have a little bit in savings, that's the highest level of, of enjoyment that you can get for money. That's interesting. And so what's interesting about it is six years later, we had Arthur Brooks come and speak at our leadership conference. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of us have gotten to know and admire Arthur Brooks, but they did a big economic study and gathered all this data. And they said, hey, the the best salary range that brings the most happiness, 72,000 a year. Yeah. And and he had all this is data that, to back Is that it current, 72,000 a year? It, this was six, seven years ago. Yeah, so. yeah. But that's definitely true. Like I've experienced that. I mean- Anyways, yeah, keep going. That's what he said. Yeah, so. it was just interesting that after Larry passed away, an economist like validated what Larry's intuition was. Yeah, and and the well, point, he had lived it, right? He had come from no nothing. No question. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, we put so much hope on what money will do for us. Yeah. And Arthur said something really interesting. It was in essence, look, the studies show that when people move into a dream house, they're less happy six months later because they put so much hope that a dream house is going to do something for them. Yeah. And if that's what you're pinning your your enjoyment on, you're going to be like, disappointed. Yeah. That's not what brings you joy. Yeah. I have found that with everything in terms of money in life. It, you know, I came from nothing and have, have built something and uh, that's how it always is. What, what I tell my kids is don't ever spend money on things. Experiences are what matter. Experiences are cool. Relationships and experiences um, th those create memories that you don't ever forget. And those are the real valuable things in life, right? Yeah. It's not a, even a dream house, so, et cetera. Obviously you need a roof over your heads. And that's why this middle income, I would bet that 72,000 now is, I, you know, I don't know what a hundred thousand sure. or whatever, but, um, having that amount of cash that, you know, you have a roof over your head, but there's not this, uh, heavy burden that kind of comes with that. And you, you witnessed that firsthand. Have you seen that? How, what have you learned about that with the Miller family and now working so closely with Ryan and his family, the Smith family? Yeah. I, like we were just talking about before this, I think at a certain point, what you realize is it's about talents. 
And how do we take three talents and make five? And how do we take five and make eight? And if that's our motive to do well with the opportunities given to us to serve and bless others, it's a lot more enjoyable. Yeah. If it's just about accumulation, then we become selfish by nature, I think. And we're not abundant in our mentality. And so, um, how have we gotten fooled in our society? Like, why are we thinking, not thinking about this? I guess this is an age old problem, but like, how can we think more like this generally? It's not easy, right? It's not easy. I think there's some comparison that drives right. it. Yeah. Um, I think we are living in a very interesting economy right now. You know, it's been called the K economy. Yeah. And I think it's really easy to assume that everybody is doing well. Um, I grew up with nothing too. Yeah. I, I mean, I went to Weber State after my mission. I and, love that. And and I like, I, I got a Pell Grant. I my family qualified for a Pell Grant, and uh, and and yet there was something about that experience of having to strive every day to get a scholarship, you know, to be able to work while going to college that has developed me into who I am. And I don't think we should discount the experience and the journey that we go through. And that there's something powerful about that, that, that money will never provide. And, and now we're in situations, and I don't know what your family situation's like or how you think about this, but my kids are never going to have to go through those experiences. Yeah. They're, they're going to have different experiences. Yeah. Doesn't that kind of make you sad? Yeah. It does. It does. But, but yet as parents, we're tempted to not want them to go through those things too. Yeah. But that's what created us. Yeah. That's the character that was built inside of us. No question. Same within Ryan, right? Ryan's story or, or Larry's story. It's that, that character that was built as they struggled, as they learned, that was so valuable in the end. What did you learn? What did you learn from Larry Miller? What, what are the couple of key takeaways? What, and what was he really like? You you were close to him. Most people were not, you know? Yeah. Larry was um, unguarded. You know, he would do his weekly radio show and you just literally, he would open his mouth and there were no secrets. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, he had a weekly radio show. I didn't know. Yeah. He had a weekly radio uh, show. Wow. And like he on just, KSL? Or? Uh, it was on uh, one of the sports radio stations. Oh, okay. And so what you saw was what you got with Larry. Yeah. He was authentic. He was the guy wearing khakis and white shoes. I really admired <laughs> that because he opened up to you. You felt this sense of emotional connection and I think that as a leader, that's really hard to do Yeah. because a lot of people want, uh, you know, uh, wanted Larry's time and attention and he just, he was open Yeah. and he was authentic and real. And sometimes that was emotional and, and yet you loved him. And before I got there, the stories of Larry is that he could be hard on people, Yeah. but people never left because they knew that Larry loved him. Yeah. And, and so they tolerated some of that because he treated them really well and fairly and they loved him as much as they felt he loved them, which was an enormous amount. The other thing with Larry is that he was incredibly intelligent in an unorthodox way. Mm-hmm. You know, he told me that if he knew how to do a business plan, he would have never bought the jazz because it would have said run. <laughs> yep. But he knew numbers and he knew cash flow. And he managed the business early on in that way with an incredible amount of risk. But in his mind, it was acceptable risk because he knew how the numbers were going to work and that the cash flow would be there. Yeah, I could never replicate his mastery over numbers. I think he had a photo- photographic memory. Um, he would memorize Toyota part numbers, literally. Really? Like he became <laughs> the first parts manager in Toyota to sell a million dollars of parts really? because he memorized the part numbers and he could go get it off the shelf quicker. And That's so there's a lot that you couldn't follow. But with, uh, I would just say this in summary. 
Larry always wanted to do what was right. Yeah. And he like the values piece wasn't just talk. It wasn't just a sign on the wall when you walk in the corporate headquarters. He told me, Steve, I want to walk past somebody in 10 years and look them in the eye and say, hey, we did a deal 10 years ago. We both won and we both feel good about that. It's like I never want to take advantage of somebody and we want to do it right. And that's cool. Yeah, I think it's really hard. I have felt this at times. I mean, you have to have a certain amount of energy to to build. You know, Ryan Smith has a certain amount of energy. Larry certainly did. Um, we all have. But it's this balance between understanding that relationships are what matters. Mm-hmm. How did you see Larry evolve in that? Or, how, how you know, you've worked now with Larry and, and with Ryan and others how, how do you, what have you learned from that? What's the balance? How do you balance that? You know, how do you be hard charging and ready to get things done, but also worry about the individual just as much and the person that's, that's hard at times. It is hard. I don't think Larry did it very well, honestly. Yeah. I think he would be the first, he has said that. But he evolved, right? As he, he got older, but, but he, okay, but keep going. Yeah. yeah think, Cause that's kind of the reputation I think he has is that he did burn some bridges. He wasn't meaning to, I'm sure, but yeah, it's just early on, he pushed so hard yeah. that he didn't have balance in his life. He didn't have, he didn't prioritize things that I think he regretted, late, regretted later in life. And, and the rest of the Miller family as a result now, I think has learned, they observed that. And so you have Gail who is remarkably hardworking, yeah. engaged. And yet with Gail, she always reminds you, make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Make sure you're taking care of your families don't get burned out. And so she has developed that balance. And uh, I think, I think our generation, it's more accepted than it was. There's like this old school mentality where you just had to grind. And and now I think that you and I and our generation would say that you can work really hard, but it shouldn't come to the expense of, yeah. And and still be with your kids and still say, yeah. You know, that that was even hard for me though, early in my career. Was it hard for you? Yeah, I think it, it definitely is. I had a colleague one time come in and said, you need to go on vacation. Yeah. Like leave, literally. You need to go plan something and get away for a week. You're, it's I can tell that you you need it yeah. and your family needs it. And so it's healthy. Yeah, that's great. Um, so tell us about the, well, I guess before we get into the jazz, let's just talk about how does, the, so the Larry H. Miller companies now, you're the CEO. What does that mean? What do those companies look like? What's, you know, what's exciting, whatever. Yeah. So over the years, the Miller organization's really become a diverse portfolio management company. We own and operate businesses like automotive, 60 plus automotive dealerships in seven states, one of the biggest automotive retailers in the country. We have a large automotive finance company, Prestige Financial, which is a great, great organization. Um, We have the the Jazz, obviously Megaplex, the Bees, the Vivint Arena, and... um, and then we've had a, a growing real estate portfolio of businesses. Uh, five years ago, Gail put in place a board of directors and, and the board said, look, let's diversify even further. And knowing what the family's goals were, um, we started on that track to diversify. And um, at the end of last year, we acquired a healthcare company, Advanced Healthcare. Uh, they run skilled nursing facilities, post-acute facilities, um, help people transition after, after a surgery back into everyday life. Yeah. Uh, they sniffs or whatever, sniffs, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Skilled you know, nursing facilities. Yes. And uh, I've just heard of it because I'm investing things, but yeah. Yeah. They have over 20 facilities, uh, great business, a really solid management team. And, and so that was a great opportunity for us to 
get into a business that matched our values, our geographical footprint, and uh, and then diversify the portfolio. And then last year, obviously, the sell of 80% of the jazz in the arena has created a catalyst for us to be able to grow and invest. And and uh, and just last week, it was announced that we acquired the Daybreak development in South Jordan, which is the which fifth. Which is awesome. Yeah, it's the fifth largest master plan community in the country. And it still has thousands and thousands of homes to be built on it and 300 acres of commercial and, and some surrounding area that we want to do right. It's That's about building communities. And I think one of our investment philosophies has become, let's build communities. Yeah, We did it through the jazz. We literally built, Miller family built up the community by keeping that asset in this state and then building an incredible fan base and arena. And, and we want to be in and around good things. We look long-term and and so you'll see us continue to invest, grow, and and hopefully impact the community in positive ways. That's exciting. I mean, Daybreak's an exciting development, obviously, already what's there and what is to come. And like you said, that's a big part of your legacy, right? Like that's a critical, well, that, that's a critical um, neighborhood or, you know, development for Utah, but certainly on the west side of Salt Lake City, the capital and biggest city in Utah. I mean, it, it's absolutely yeah. enormous. Well, that southwest part of the county is enormous because the yeah. growth out there is so there's land, significant. Right? And yeah. so it just keeps people keep pushing it. Like that's where a lot of the growth is going. And there's infrastructure. Be. Yeah. There's a tracks line that ends right in what's called downtown daybreak, which will be developed. There's the uh, Mountain View corridor. There's Bangor Highway, which they're improving and doing these flyovers. You'll be at the airport in 25 minutes. Yeah. And so it becomes a strategic location for economic development where you can raise a family. And uh, ultimately we want to bring jobs there. We want to have a campus of, of office buildings. And, and, and as we've met with County mayor and others, mayor Ramsey in South Jordan, they've all said like, we, we need to take some infrastructure or some pressure off our infrastructure. There's so much talent that lives in and around that area. Let's just make sure that we're building corporate centers yeah, so that they don't have to drive to Lehigh. Yeah. That's a big issue. I mean, I know when I was running for governor, I spent a lot of time out there. That is a huge, and with Mayor Ramsey, that is a huge issue, right? That's where the growth is. That's where people are going, but how do you maintain a great quality of life? You got to have infrastructure. You got to have ways for people to get to places, job centers, good roads, et cetera. That's a big deal. So daybreak's a huge deal. The jazz, oh, go keep going. Well, and I think that 2020 taught us that we can be more flexible in, in how we work and where we work. <laughs> That's for sure. And so we plan to do that there. That's awesome. Hey guys, it's Jeff. Thank you so much for listening to the Extraordinary Us podcast. There's a lot of momentum behind the podcast right now, and we are so excited. I've got a special guest with me for a second here, my wife, Sally. Hello, good to be here. Why are you here, Sal? We're starting a new podcast together, which I am super excited about. It is called Under Our Bed. And we are literally people under our bed recording We are right now. sitting right under our bed. And if you want to hear more <laughs> about why we called it Under Our Bed, tune in to our first episode, yeah. wherever you get your podcasts, because we're going to explain what it means. We hope to have candid and meaningful conversations together about issues that are relevant to you today. Absolutely. Good night, Sal. Good night. The Jazz have been making the news a little bit this year. Yeah. Let's just say a little. <laughs> this has been a huge year for the Jazz. Like, the, number one, they're great. Yeah. The team is awesome. They have the best record in the NBA. They're on fire. I love Jordan Clarkson. He's such a gunner. For those of you who have played basketball with me and or in Andrew growing up or still do, I just love that gunner mentality. I'm a shooter, and I love, I love the team. Obviously, the deal, you were right. I mean, you were – 
How, how did that come together? I mean, in as much as you can tell us, how did that come together? What was considered? You spoke about diversification within the Larry H. Miller companies. Yeah. You have these cash flowing businesses like like the car dealerships and everything automotive. But I, I guess the family, maybe unbeknownst to people, maybe hadn't had a big liquidity event, so to speak, or an exit or selling a business until the jazz. Is that right. correct? So, you know, tell us about how that came together. Tell us as much as you can. I mean, people are curious. How did that come together? And what was kind of the thinking from the Miller side? Whatever you can share would be awesome. Yeah, G- glad to talk about that. You're right. The, Larry used to say, we buy these businesses to run them, not to sell them. And when Greg Miller became the CEO, he's like, I don't know that that still makes sense for us. There's some businesses <laughs> we may want to sell or get out of. Yeah, That wasn't the case with the Jazz. It was never something that they were looking to sell or get out of. Obviously, that's been a labor of love yeah. to build that franchise. It's one of the most winning franchise over the last 30 years. And Adam Silver literally almost cried when he found out the Millers were selling. Really? Because they've been model NBA owners oh. and, and stewardship and doing it the right way. And, um, and so it, it was unexpected. It wasn't like a five-year strategic plan to sell the team. Uh, I think that in 2020 with COVID, everybody started to look differently at what was the future and how did we, how did the Miller family want to define legacy? And, you know, over the years, Ryan had become a great partner. We respected him. We loved the fight for the fight Jersey patch. Yeah. It kind of showed who he was and, yeah. and, um, and he had expressed interest multiple times um, that he wanted to buy the jazz. And I would always say, and Gail would always say, hey, it's not for sale. Yeah. Ryan that wasn't had, a secret around that, town, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And so Ryan and I had lunch one day, uh, right here, actually, close by Riverside Country Club. And and he had said, I almost bought an NBA team and decided not to. And, and uh, he reiterated his interest. And I left that lunch and I thought, you know what? There's something different about that conversation for some reason. And so it planted a seed in my mind that, you know, I wonder if this will ever happen. I wonder if it's the right time for us. And then That's uh, interesting. independent of that conversation, a couple members of the Miller family brought it up to me and, mm-hmm. and, and less about Ryan and just more about, hey, is it the right time for us to look to sell the jazz? Mm-hmm. And are there other things that we would want to do now? And, you know, we've, we've accomplished so much with that. Maybe it's somebody else's turn to yeah. be a steward. Yeah. And so as we started having those conversations, those two paths really merged. Ryan's interest, the Miller family's, you know, willingness to explore what they wanted to do into the future. And they merged. And Ryan and I were, you know, I've received authority from our board of directors to go negotiate, you know, the, the term, the, the sell of the jazz and the terms. And it was great. How did Ryan react when you told him that, that maybe this could happen? Yeah. Well, I think he was, you know, I think the exact (laughs) phrase I said is Ryan, I'm, I'm authorized to have this conversation with you. Yeah. We're not going to open this up. Oh, cool. So it was just with Ryan. Yeah. Like, like like if we can get this done with you, then we're not going to like have to go through a process. And, And I think that's, you know, a lot of people will tell you hire an investment bank, run a deep yeah. process. And and for the Millers, it was more about, you know, let's be fair, but let's make sure that we're selling to the right person yeah. because of the success of the team long-term would define the success of the transaction. Yeah. And, and so Ryan didn't blink and he was great. And what we said through the process, and I give him enormous credit is this is about, you know, the Millers, it's about Ryan Smith, but it's about the community first and foremost. And so 
all the way through the transaction, all the way through the process. And ever since it's been about what's good for Utah and what's good for the franchise long-term. And Jeff, it's been really cool to see. And I remember one conversation. It's like, you, you're buying a really good team. Yeah. And in and, and one of the conversations with the Millers, I'm like, look, let me just paint a picture for you. Imagine Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, is handing the trophy at center court. Oh, no, don't paint that. I mean, paint that. Yes, paint that picture, yeah. but that's painful, right? Yeah, it's but like, yeah. and imagine that that's being handed to Ryan Smith. Are you okay with that? Like emotionally before this decision is made. And you yeah. know what they what said? What did they say? They said, yes, because it's about the community. It's yeah. about the state. And we will share in that pride. Like we'll feel good. It's not about us. And yeah. And and so Ryan, we have a really good team. This team could be special. And I think it's I think so. I think it is. And that's so exciting. But, how, how, but okay, he has stepped up yeah, every step of the yeah, way. Awesome. Like he has done an incredible job and you know really proud of him as a friend, really proud of him as a fan. And, and, you know, and I'm here to help him. He knows that. And yeah. What have you learned about Ryan through the process and or the Smith family and his, his vision? Like what, what makes you excited for the future for the jazz and for the franchise under the Smith? I just think that he brings an energy about it and a passion that you feel it's palpable. Yeah. Um, he's engaged, but Ryan's a really good listener. I can't tell you how many times he's called me, and and just ask like Steve, what are your thoughts? How would you handle this? He's or, a learner. He asks good he questions. Is. Yeah, he, he does. does. And you know, there's been some times where I I will offer my perspective on what things were done in the past and how we would approach it. I'd give my opinion on a, a specific situation and offer to help. And he's collaborative. He's super inclusive in the way that he leads and operates. Um, I've been impressed that I think a lot of NBA owners owners would want to come in and put their fingerprints on everything right away. And Ryan's said like, look, let's, first of all, we have the best team in the NBA record wise right now. Yeah. And so let's not mess anything up. Yeah. And then he's going to put his own, you know, touch on it over time and personalization, which I think you're starting to feel, which is great. And I think our fans are responding to it well. And, and, uh, and so if, and let me just summarize. I think he's a great listener. I think he's collaborative. He's, he's inclusive. I think that what he did with Dwayne Wade was remarkable. Yeah, D. Wade, baby. Yeah, that's cool. I, I think it just showed a willingness to be courageous. Yeah. You know, Dwayne Wade is one of the most respected NBA players of the last 20 years. Yeah. And a lot of owners would say they would be threatened by that because, hey, is he going to have a bigger voice than me? Or Ryan wasn't about that. He's like, look, let's build the best team, the best ownership group, and it's going to pay dividends for all of us. And so I, I love that move. Yeah, that's and exciting. I, I think that's a glimpse into his, you know, creativity and courage. Yeah, how did that come together? I know a little bit, but don't want to say too much. And, you know, Dwayne is close to Clark Miyasaki, who has ties to Utah. Uh, Clark is one of the founders, works at Stance, had a partnership on socks with the NBA, and has been close to all those guys a little bit. And knows, you know, is kind of in the crew here, knows Ryan and all the entrepreneurship kind of community when did you get a glimpse of that happening and what's the vision that you might yeah. be able to share that we have for it? I just, you know, Ryan brought it up to me a couple months ago and said, what do you think? And I thought it's really intriguing. And, and Dwayne is universally respected. You know, we just talked about structure, strategy and, and all of that roles. And over the last couple of months, I think that Ryan got really close to Dwayne yeah. and needed to get a feel for who he was and, and, you know, I don't want to say too much, but the one thing I can say is that Ryan said to him, Hey, like you have to be all in on Utah, yeah. you know, like we're partners, we're doing this together. We're building, 
um, this and and Dwayne was and and so it was announced last Friday and I think it took the world by surprise. Yeah. Not awesome. the first time in the last 12 months that news about the jazz is surprise. The everybody. jazz are on fire. But it's been fun. Yeah, it was so funny. There was a post on Facebook from our state auditor, John Dougal, who is a good friend of both of ours and we know well in politics. He's the state auditor. And he posted something like, I've never heard of Dwayne Wade. And I, I responded on Facebook. I said, never has it been more clear to me that I was so far outside of my lane running for governor last year than this post? No, even though, no post, even wow. though I'm an entrepreneur, I'm not a politician, no post has made it more clear to me how far outside my lane was that you had all these, I think Amy Winder chimed in and yeah, who's Dwayne Wade? I'm like, oh my gosh, wow. you don't know who Dwayne Wade is. It was just so, I'm, I'm saying that in good fun and it's just funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a big deal. That's huge for the jazz. It's huge for Ryan. I'm super happy happy and excited about that. Let me ask one more question before we move on. How much, because this kind of came together in the last year, yeah. how much did COVID and Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, all, every, all the civil unrest and everything that's happened in the last year, how much did that play into this time? I mean, I know it played some, I mean, the world's changed, things have changed. This has been a, a unique year in every way for everyone, including the jazz, including uh, you know, and so how much did that play into it? I'm just curious or give, give us some thoughts or feelings because when, when the news came out that, you know, right away that, that Ryan was buying, I, w I wasn't shocked, uh, maybe as shocked as most people. I was a little surprised, but to me, actually, it made sense with the timing because of some of the things we've spoken about. What Give us some uh, an inside look on how the last year kind of played into that. I think it only played into it in that COVID, the pandemic, probably within all of us allowed us to see some things from a different perspective. Interesting. So like reflection. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I think it, it created reflection. That would be the biggest impact. Fortunately, from an economic standpoint, the organization was very healthy in 2020, meaning the Larry H. Miller group of companies um, are, you know, most of our businesses thrived in this weird economy that we had and the jazz were shut down for the summer and got back going in Orlando, but movie theaters were shut down, but they represent a fairly small part of the total. And so the nice thing was the decision to sell wasn't because of financial yeah. pressure. Nope, I know that. It, yeah. it was a pure decision where it was like, look, we're very blessed and fortunate that businesses are thriving. Is this the right decision for us? As it relates to Black Lives Matter, uh, that had zero impact on the Miller family's desire to sell. Yeah, I think if anything, what we showed last year was support of the players and what they were going through and yeah. support of the conversation that took place nationally around let's, let's be better to each other and let's look at some things objectively, fairly and say we can get better. And, and in those moments for me personally and for the Miller family, I think reaching out and talking to our, our, our black colleagues, our friends, our associates, and having real conversations made us better. And I think that was the experience that we all felt. And um, it's not like the Millers to ever run from a controversial issue. They want to do what's right. And I think um, that was demonstrated through at the course of the summer up until the sell. And it continues to be. Yeah. You know, one of the things that Ryan has done so well is the scholarship program for every win. Yep. I don't know if this, I, I can't recall if this idea came from that, but a lot of people don't know that Gail Miller has been doing that for 18 years. Okay. She hasn't tied it to wins, but yeah. there's about 40 scholarships that she's paid for a year that go to minority and underserved uh, students to go to the University of Utah. And it's called the Larry H. Miller Enrichment Scholarship. Like I said, it's in its 17th or 18th year. 
And that continues because I think that, that Gail in particular um, has led within our community this conversation around let's help lift each other up regardless yeah. of race, ethnicity, background, whatever it might be. That's awesome. Let me, um, I, we could talk forever. I wish we had more time and there's so many things I'd like to ask. Let me ask three kind of maybe rap more rapid fire okay. questions just, just because I know we've got to run, but a word about Gail and Greg and the, you know, I know Gail a little bit, know Greg fairly well, I've skied with him a little bit and talked to him a little bit about the governor run he considered running as well. Um, you know, we talked about Larry I mean, Gail's just a treasure, right? Like a state of Utah national treasure and Greg's awesome. Uh, a little bit about Gail and Greg. Yeah, Gail is uh, remarkably um, classy, dignified. She's as good as you think she is. She cares about the community. She cares about the legacy of this organization and doing it right. Um, she is not driven by the bottom line. And she wants to make Utah a better place in her own way. And so whether that's donating to children's hospitals or homelessness, she's incredible. And her kids are incredible. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Greg. Steve is the vice chair of the board. Um, her son, I Brian. Yeah, I don't yeah, know I mean, kids as well. Great family. And they're all equally committed to doing it the right way. That's and, awesome. and, and How many know, children are there? Uh, there are. Um, there's Greg. Uh, they had a son pass away yeah. named Roger uh, yeah. about six, seven years ago. There's Steve. There's Brian, there's Karen, who's the daughter, and then Zane, Larry and Gelray Zane. Awesome. Cool. Who's a grand, grandson. That's awesome. So, and I would just say this, you know, without getting into numbers, Gail took a, a big percentage of the proceeds from the sale of the jazz and put it in her foundation. And, and that, because she wants yeah. that foundation to live in perpetuity and giving to the community. She'll continue to be a force, she right? Will. Like just yeah. in the community. It's awesome. Uh, tell us about, uh, you know, you're pretty close with Spencer Cox, the governor Cox governor, um, much to my chagrin. Like, you know, <laughs> I was like, Steve, come out. You're like, you know, um, come help me. I'm running for governor. Uh, but tell, just talk to me a little bit about your, are you excited? I know you're excited. You, you ran the transition overall transition. I helped with the, the economic transition, yeah. ran the go ed committee. We worked together on that. Um, you know, talk to me maybe about the transition of Huntsman versus Cox. You had experience in both and why you're, uh, excited about the governor Cox, uh, yeah. you know, well, first of all, um, I think it's incredible that you ran for governor because we complain all the time about we don't get the right people to run and you're the right person. The fact that you put yourself out there as a business leader, entrepreneur, community builder, I, I think is incredible. And we Thanks. need more willing people to take the risk and get involved and bring their perspectives. Because if it's the same kind of political hobbyist, you know, that doesn't lead to good governance or policy. And so I appreciate that. I really admire I you doing that and your family. Cause it's not easy. It's not, that is one of the small reasons, by the way, I ran is just to open the, open the gate a little wider for maybe Silicon Slopes entrepreneurs or whatever to say, maybe I could get involved in politics, but yeah. that's nice of you to no, say. I appreciate that. Great. It was a, it was a very good learning and painful experience, you know, as well. It was good. Well, Spencer and I have been friends for several years. Um, before he was going to run for governor. Um, and uh, I have admired his personal attributes, his commitment. Him and Abby, I think, are incredible people, first and foremost. And then when he got serious about running, you know, I was very supportive of that because, like, you know, for those other reasons, he's a really gifted communicator. I think that we had all recognized that he's very human. Yeah. I, I think that we've seen that he has 
helped our state already by being able to address some policy issues in human terms and to see it less as a political issue, more of how do we treat each other as human beings, as fellow Utahns. Yeah. And so I've been, I've been, you know, pleased with that. It's not unexpected, proud of him. The transition was a great process because um, you don't have these too often in government. Yeah. And and I think that it would be tempting to think about, okay, the Herbert Cox administration, let's just keep everything going. But um, the governor-elect and lieutenant governor-elect said, let's just look at everything with fresh eyes, as yeah. though a new administration was coming in, which it was, but let's look at everything. And so we assembled a great team. You know, you led the economic development task force. We had that replicated about 25 times. Lynn Ward was the co-chair. She's a veteran of government, you know, very impressive woman and leader. And so the end result of that, I think, was a good assessment of the talent and, and then the recruiting of additional talent to come and work in state government and then some recommendations on structure you know, some consolidation that would make sense strategically to create efficiencies and also just some governance principles that I hope I think will help long term. Yeah, I'm, I'm super bullish on what's going on there. I think it is exciting and it it is good to get a fresh perspective. You don't have these changeovers very often. And I've appreciated the way that even though Spencer was lieutenant governor, gosh, take this time for change to make progress. Yeah. The jazz were great. I think Ryan can take it to the next level. You know, Gary, the Governor Herbert was great. Hopefully, Governor Cox can make it to the best level. And I think the Millers and the Herberts, they hope that as well. No you kind of build upon each other, right? That's the Utah way. And I've been impressed by that. Last question, then I'll let you go. You know, what's what are you excited about in the future? What What's next for Steve Starks? Um, I've, I've loved getting to know you and I'm so impressed with what you've been able to accomplish. It's unbelievable at your age and you're certainly a leader here in the state and beyond. But, you know, what's next? What are you excited about? Um, give us a feel and a flavor for I'm really excited about where our organization's going. Yeah. I think the Daybreak acquisition was uh, remarkably um, strategic and surprising to the, the market because that's not traditionally what we've been in. But I think that that sets an interesting stage for us moving future and helping build this state out from a real estate standpoint. Um, I'm excited about the opportunity to go partner with good people to make good investments that are going to have an impact long term to acquire companies that make sense. And I'm ex I've never been more excited. And I think that others in our organization would tell you this about our future because of the opportunities we now have. And we want to get it right. We want to do it in a strategic way, but in a way that's sustainable, that has a long term impact. We want to be very successful so we can give more money to Gail to give to the foundation. Yeah. which will enrich the community for a long time to come. Um, personally, you know, my oldest daughter is about to become a teenager. <laughs> so Welcome. What's next for us is talking about whether or not she gets a cell phone. <laughs> exactly. So we, we, you know, love. Gab Wireless. Have you heard of Gab? Yeah, yeah. Gab Wireless, plug for Utah company. <laughs> yeah. Just the made the founder of that's a former neighbor of mine, by oh, the really? way. Great guy. They just raised a round yesterday. I saw that. Taysom Hill invested, right? Yeah, Did I, you I invest in it? Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. super fun. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Well, I think it's great. So. It's cool. You know, just continue to try to do good things. and Yeah, well, Steve, like I said, what, I, what I've appreciated about you, and, and this is kind of the purpose of the podcast, you're an ordinary guy in this. You're a dad. You're, you went to Weber State. You're from, uh, you know, Huntsville, Utah, but 
you're doing extraordinary things. No, and thank you. Uh, I think the world of you, I think you're a great role model for up and coming business people and civic leaders in the state. Certainly there's a bright future for you. Thank Are you. you interested in politics? Like, do you think you'll ever, are you going to, do you like being the supportive role or do you think you'd ever like step out and say, here I am, let's go. Yeah. I, I'm really comfortable I dare you, being by the, the way, supportive role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's super fun. Believe I, me. I, I enjoy helping. Yeah. I enjoy being supportive. Um, I don't know that I would want to go through what it takes now. Yeah. I'm really worried about the state of our politics. So am I. Yeah. You know, it's a I, whole different conversation, but it it's is. scary. I yeah. just, I think that we are becoming further and further polarized around issues and that we need to come together and that we need to stop seeing each other as enemies. And um, I, I, I turned on, look, I'll just say this. I, I turned on Fox News last night and I don't do that too often. Yeah. I, you know, I read Twitter. I, I like to read more than watch the news now. But what I saw in about a five minute segment was it was disheartening. Yeah. I mean, they were going after former President Bush. And they were mocking him. They were making fun of his art. And what I find is that it's mean-spirited. It's become like the, you know, like an entertainment spectacle. Yeah. And Almost and, like blood sport, you know? Yeah. yeah. And if that's what people are watching and that if they're following those cues about the way that we should see the world in each other, then we're, we're going to be in trouble. We have to see each other for who we are. Yeah. And that's people, brothers and sisters. You know, we, we should respect the fatherhood of God. And that means inherently that there's a brotherhood and a sisterhood of man. And that infinitely is more important than these other things. And policy matters. And I get it. And good governance and the Constitution. Like, those are things I, I feel strongly about. I love. They've made the greatest country in the history of the world. But that greatest country can fall apart if we start seeing each other as enemies. And uh, we have to come together. Totally agree. I mean, we can have vigorous debate. We can disagree about things. We're not enemies, though. As soon as you become evil to me because you don't disagree with me or vice versa, we're in a bad state. Yeah. And I feel like that's where we're headed. And we'll if our politicians are just, if they're scoring points by ripping each other apart or who whoever can give the, you know, the sharpest dagger to somebody like that's, come on, we need to elevate the rhetoric. We need to elevate the intelligence with which we're approaching these things and um, hopefully we can well steve i appreciate your friendship thanks for coming down i can't wait to see what you do in the future thank you thanks man the rise of steve starks is such an incredible and amazing story i mean larry miller kind of handpicked him you know 15 years a little bit out of obscurity i mean obviously he has immense talents and potential but Larry saw something in him, brought him into the organization, not even sure, I think, exactly what he was going to do. It was more like, hey, you're a talented person. Let's find a place for you to help here. And now he is the CEO of the Larry H. Miller Group. He, he had been the president of the Utah Jazz for the last five years or so before Ryan Smith brought the franchise. But to, that that rise is, is incredible to me. Uh, number one, three things stuck out. That's the first. Number two, um, it's interesting to talk about Black Lives Matters a little bit, um, especially this week. I, my, here's my challenge, and I see the Millers doing this. I see Ryan Smith doing this. I see many people across the state and in our country doing this, but this is what I've tried to do is I've thought of this problem and this challenge and what can I do about this issue. Pick something that you personally can do 
to make a difference. One of the things I've done is, is tried to invest some more dollars in uh, black founders here in the state of Utah. I've never said that publicly, but that's just, that's a way that I can personally help. And so uh, a year or so, a little more or a little less than a year ago, I said, hey, this is a way that I can help. I've gone on a couple boards to try to help these black founders be successful in entrepreneurship. What can you do and your personal circumstance and your personal life to be inclusive, to share the love and, and to be a good example. The last thing is, I think this Daybreak acquisition, which again was just announced, is an exciting, uh, exciting precursor for a lot of what's to come for the Larry H. Miller family, for the Miller family, I should say, the Larry H. Miller companies, for Steve Starks. They are looking for massive projects within the state of Utah where they can leave their mark and leave their legacy. I have no doubt that they'll do that. Steve Starks is the leader of that organization. I appreciate his friendship. I can't wait to see what he does in the future. Keep an eye out there. And thank goodness for great families all across our state, our country, and our world that are normal, that have challenges, that have ups and downs, but are doing their best. And like he said, the parable of the talents, they're trying to turn their three or five talents into six or 10. Let us all do that in our sphere of influence and where we can. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Extraordinary Us podcast with Jeff Burningham. Please help us grow by leaving a rating and review and subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Also, tell your friends and share on social media. See you again next week. Hey guys, what's up? It's Jeff. And Sal. I'm here with my wife. Why? Because we're starting a podcast together. Yes, we are. And it's called... Under Our Bed. Why is it called that, Sally? Because we are sitting under our bed right now. We this, are. In this podcast Yes. Studio. And we're going to be talking about things that are interesting, vulnerable, relevant. Funny. So check it out. <laughs> funny if you're on. <laughs> so check it out wherever you get your podcast, wherever you listen to The Extraordinary Us. Look for Under Our Bed with Jeff and Sal. Check it out. Good night. Good night.